Gracious and loving God, we thank you for bringing us safely to this new week, and we ask your blessing upon us as we study the book of Exodus. And as we begin this new book of the Bible, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to those places that even now you seek to liberate us from our captivity. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless, imposing tasks on the Israelites, and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. All right, and thus ends the first chapter of the book of Exodus. So right off the bat, I just want to say a few words about Exodus, which is a continuation of the story that began in Genesis with the patriarchs. That's very clear from the very first verse where we are given the sons of Israel. Just a, a reminder that Israel is synonymous with Jacob, that after Jacob wrestles that mysterious man in chapter 32 of the book of Genesis, God changes his name to Israel. And so Israel is really the story of the sons of Jacob. These are what become the 
tribes of Israel. And as we recall from the end of the book of Genesis that Joseph was sold into slavery, he found favor with Pharaoh, there was a famine in the land, and his brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph revealed himself as being the one they betrayed, and the story had a wonderful happy ending as the sons of Israel settled in the land of Goshen. And we're told that the total number total born to Jacob was 70. I encourage us to see this as a symbolic number. Uh, it appears several times in scripture. After the number seven and maybe three, 70 is an image in scripture of wholeness and completeness. And so you have the complete people finding their way into Egypt and they are fruitful and prolific, just as God commanded them to be at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The land is growing filled with God's people. And so the story is unfolding just as it should, as God rescues his people from famine. Everything's good until verse eight. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And of course, there's a, a practical piece here that eventually change of leadership. They no longer remember the favor that Joseph found with Pharaoh. But I think a larger statement is being made here about worldly kings and about how fragile any allegiance is to a worldly king, a question that will arise in the book of Exodus is, who is the true king to rule over us? Who is the king with power? Who is the king who knows us? Right? That idea of being known, right? In Hebrew, to know someone is to have intimacy with them. It's to, to, to truly know them, not with the intellect, but fully who is the king who knows us? And of course, a worldly ruler never knows us and thus never loves us. And so a new king arises and he immediately looks with suspicion upon the Israelite people. And notice that what motivates the king of Egypt's dealings with Israel is fear. This is a preemptive strike. He looks at them growing and says, oh my goodness, these people are growing. Let's go ahead and subdue them and conquer them and oppress them before they have the opportunity to do the same thing with us. And one of the things I just want to note, because uh, the Bible is so rich in kind of pointing out patterns of human behavior is that this is typically the way it usually works. I'm not a, a historian. But I think I'm, you know, pretty confident saying that if one can kind of go back and do a survey of the great wars of history and kind of really dive deep, my guess is that there is a spiraling of mutual fear that leads to escalation. Whenever we feel fear, we act on that fear. It leads to aggression and to sinful behavior. And so that's what the uh, king of Egypt does. He basically says, let's go ahead and get these people under control with forced labor, and he forces them to build supply cities. But then we're told that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
And I think something is being said here about the working of God. We go back, for instance, to what Joseph said to his brothers whenever they apologized for throwing him into that pit. Joseph said, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good, right? The more they tried to kill and to stamp out Joseph, the more he arose to a place of prominence. And God worked through people trying to stamp out Joseph in order to actually save his brothers. And I think there's something said here, being said here about how God works, that the more you try to work against God, the less effective you're actually going to be. In fact, the church fathers took this verse and said that it was a commentary on the early church, right? Because it was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church, they said, that as people were willing to lay down their life for Christ, to give their life for the kingdom of God, that people found this deeply attractive, and that the more the Romans tried to persecute the church, the more it grew. And traditionally speaking, if we look back in, in history, the church doesn't really do well in comfortable, complacent times. They might grow in numbers, for instance, under Constantine through forced baptisms. You know, if, if you if you hold up a sword to a people and conquer them and force them to be baptized, your ASA will grow, but the spirit of the church will not. That whenever the church is persecuted or falling on difficult times, the more that faith grows and spreads. And I think that, you know, even though we've never experienced persecution and I don't wish that upon us, I think about something as simple of just the spirit that kind of uh, arose in St. Michael's right when COVID hit, right when the winter freeze happened in 2021, that there's this, this great outpouring of love and concern when the conditions are the least hospitable for action. Um, there's something about difficulty that awakens our spirit and helps us grow. And, and the church fathers really latched onto this verse to say, that's how God works. But to go back to the story, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. And what does it say in verse 13? It says, they became ruthless in imposing tasks. They became ruthless. Whenever we enslave anyone, we become ruthless. A question in the book of Exodus is, who will we become? Uh, we're going to see this uh, heightened during the plagues when at first, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But then by the sixth plague, we're told that God hardens his heart, right? The implication being that as we make choices to harden our heart, at some point, it's just hardened. And the Egyptians foreshadowing Pharaoh are becoming hardened. They're becoming ruthless as they enslave the Israelites. And I think that that says something about, um, about us. I, I, I shared this with the Sunday group. I, I just finished reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's a, a really impactful book. But one of the things that book highlights is just how hardened slave owners became uh, by the very institution um, and how um, the more people kind of bought in to that as a viable way of treating people, the more hardened they became. Uh, and so the Egyptians are becoming ruthless as they enslave the Israelites and they impose very harsh tasks on them. 
By verse 15, I want you to notice how it's not enough, and it never is. That's the point being made, right? So here are the people of Israel. They are now enslaved, and the entire economy is being, you know, grown uh, through their forced certitude. But notice the king of Egypt in verse 15. He basically goes to them and says, you know what? I'm still nervous. Let's just go ahead and kill all the boys. It's very subtle, right? The king of Egypt doesn't start by saying, let's wipe out the males. He starts by saying, I'm scared of these people. Let's go ahead and make them slaves. And we don't know how much time passes, but the more he enslaves them, the more ruthless he becomes, verse 13. And by verse 15, he basically says, you know what? Let's go ahead and just kill all these males off. It's forced genocide. And so he goes to two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, and basically tells them, you know, if it's a boy, go ahead and kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And we're told that the midwives feared God. And two things I want to point out about this. One is this idea of fearing God. It came up in our Hebrew study. It's a question that we can all reflect on. What does it mean to fear God whenever our own life is at stake, our integrity is at stake, whatever it happens to be, um, or, or maybe our reputation? What does it mean to do the right thing and not the easy thing? And the midwives do the right thing, uh, even though their own life will be threatened by it. Um, I think it's also worth noting that before... Uh, Moses is held up as a savior, right? Because who's the great savior figure of Exodus? Moses. Who's the great hero of the Hebrew faith? Moses. Who's the one that's looked back upon with all the authority? It's Moses. But who really saves God's people before Moses in the book of Exodus? Two little-known women, Shipra and Pua. And uh, we see this in the book of Genesis where some patriarchal values are subverted, right? Where the younger receives the blessing, not the older. Likewise, um, some of the ancient patriarchal values around women are kind of slowly being poked at where you have these, these two women who are the unsung heroes of the book of Exodus and they don't receive as much attention as they probably should. But they fear God, and the story of God's salvation continues because of them. And whenever they're summoned by Pharaoh, they, they tell a little lie, you know, I mean, that they, they are trying to save their own life. And so they're very kind of wise there. But then we're told that because they feared God and did the right thing, that God blessed them by giving them families. And that's just a reminder that in the ancient world, there was no greater blessing than to have a family, than to have children. Um, and so Pharaoh, um, he continues to harden his heart, right? And so notice what it says in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Basically, he gets the whole nation on board. Every Egyptian has a command. If you find a Hebrew boy, um, our translation says throw. The Hebrew is really fling. It's it's a very uh, it's a word that really connotes just a, a horrible disrespect. Throw it out like the trash. The same way that you take your trash and fling it in a dumpster. The idea is that Pharaoh says to all of his people, not just the people in power, not just his military, not just his top officials, 
but this is a national public policy. The Hebrews are our enemies. And so have you noticed the escalation, right? It starts with Pharaoh being nervous. Uh, he's scared. He's paranoid. He's got some stories. From there, he enslaves. From there, he kind of wants to kill a few boys. But then by the end of the chapter, he has the entire Egyptian people naming the Hebrews as enemies, as other, and says, let's go ahead and kill these boys. And so I want you to notice just that progression that builds uh, in the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And so how quickly it all shifts. And I think that's part of the lesson of the world as well, how quickly it can shift, how quickly we can find rest in the land of Goshen, only then to find ourselves in a much more difficult situation. All of this unfolds in a matter of one chapter. One thing that I want to just name before we have some conversation is the manner in which the gospel of Matthew will draw some parallels with the Moses story and the Jesus story. Uh, and even though we're not studying Matthew's gospel, we will look at Exodus um, um, Christologically, right? We're going to read themes of salvation in there, knowing that uh, part of it might be foreshadowing the cross. And I just want to draw some parallels with King Herod and Pharaoh, because remember what it says in Matthew, that King Herod was frightened, that he called together the chief priests, the scribes, and the people, uh, and basically tells the wise men, you know, go tell me where the star is, and go search diligently for the child, because I want to go pay him homage. But then an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, uh, get up, uh, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, because Herod wants to destroy the child. And then we have that bit in Matthew about how Herod uh, orders the execution of all males, right? Uh, just to make sure that he can kill the chosen one. And so there's that parallel in Matthew's gospel between Herod and the slaughter of the innocents and what uh, Pharaoh decrees in the book of Exodus. And I just point that out because we're going to be drawing some parallels as we do this study. And so as we study Exodus, some themes that we're going to be looking at together, we're going to be looking at this idea of salvation and salvation not being in the book of Exodus or even in the New Testament about dying and having your soul go to heaven, but rather about what does it mean to go from slavery to freedom? right? Because whatever heaven is, it is the ultimate freedom. But what does it mean to go from slavery to freedom? Um, the New Testament will pick up on this, speaking of the slavery of sin. But here, it's real slavery. What does it mean to go from slavery to freedom? The idea of a theophany, what does it mean for God to appear to us and reveal himself to us? The idea of covenant, right? Where two parties have an obligation to each other. And um, God formed a covenant with Abraham and with Jacob in the book of Genesis. And so a big question in Exodus is, what does it mean for God to honor that covenant? Uh, we're going to look at themes around election. What does it mean for Israel to be chosen? Why has God chosen this people? And then finally, we're going to be looking at Christological themes 
and ask, you know, where might uh, Jesus be hiding in this text? And so as we study the book of Exodus and kind of start our conversation about chapter one, what I want to highlight is just how quickly things can turn, how quickly they can turn in our life, how quickly they can turn in the biblical story, right? At the very end of the book of Genesis, everything is amazing. God has rescued and saved his people. But then there's that chilling verse, now a new king arose that did not know Joseph. And this king is suspicious of God's people. He enslaves God's people. And then he tries to kill God's people. And so the question is, what will God do in response? And what will we do as people who are part of that story?